Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Busman, and the theme of this week's podcast is learning how to concentrate. We're going to get off to a great start because you should be pretty engaged by this next story. That's because it's called The Hooker and the Monk. The monk is Dan Dapani. He's the guest on this week's episode, but he doesn't have anything to do with the hooker. He's very happily married with a lovely newborn daughter. So let me back up and explain. Because if not for Dan Dapani, you might not be hearing these words. Those of you who listen week after week know that for many years I made a living as a writer and interviewer. A few years ago, I was asked to give a speech on a cruise ship filled with 4,000 entrepreneurs, Summit at Sea. I'd never really spoken before. I was an under-the-radar kind of guy. And other well-known people in the business world were speaking on the same ship at the same time. I thought only about 17 people might show up to see me. You can imagine how stunned I was to find the room packed. There was a long line out the door of people who couldn't get in like at a nightclub. You gotta understand, I'd never really done this. And all of a sudden, I'm up in front of everybody and thinking, Oh, shit! But I just started talking, and an hour later, I got a standing ovation. Afterward, there was a long line of people waiting to see me. And on this line was Dan Dapani, a monk, beads and all. And he says to me, How long have you been speaking? This is the first time, I said. His eyes widened. If you like doing it, you might consider doing it all the time. Dan Dapani explained that he spoke around the world about focus, concentration, habits, meditation, and he said he'd help me get started. We arranged a phone call so he could give me a blueprint of how it worked. He was incredibly helpful, and a long-distance friendship formed. About a year later, we were both delighted to find out that we'd be in San Francisco at exactly the same time, and we agreed to meet. The night before that meeting, I came back to my hotel late, and as I moved through the revolving doors, a hooker spotted me and started following me. The lighting in the hotel was not bright, but let me tell you, her line of work was unmistakable. I figured I'd take a swing around the crowded bar and lose her, but she followed close behind. I'm thinking, what am I going to do here? When we passed through a well-lit place in the hotel, I got a glimpse of her in the full picture. Not only was she a hooker, but she was pregnant, and she looked exhausted and hungry. Part of me wanted to just pull out some cash and hand it to her so that she could have a good meal. But here's the thing. Since I'd begun to speak, people had begun to recognize me by my fedora. And anybody could take a photo with a cell phone. If I stopped to talk to her and handed her some cash, and somebody took a photo at just that moment and posted on the internet, well, I could just imagine the look on my wife's face. And though I'm a very faithful man, trust me, There was no explanation that I could provide to La Gloria that was going to suffice. So I had to figure out a way to lose the hooker. I'm walking all over the hotel, 
but she just kept following me. Finally, I turned to her and said, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't help you. What are you talking about, she asked. Her words were filled with great offense, as if she hadn't been trailing me. I hustled into the elevator and quickly closed the door, got in my room and sat on my bed, feeling like crap. She's probably starving and without a home, I thought. How could I not have helped her? And I felt bad about it all night. Next day, I got up and met Don DePani on Fisherman's Wharf, and we took a long walk. And I told him the story, just like I told you. The whole time, he's listening. We're just walking, and he's listening. And when I'm done, I ask him, what was I supposed to do? And the monk said, control your compassion. And that's why, whenever a problem arises, it's great to get together with Dandapani. And brothers and sisters, lately, I've gotten myself into a little problem, which is why I was so happy to meet up with Dandapani and discuss it on Big Questions. We're going to get into it in a moment, but first, let me tell you how my sponsors can reduce your problems. Let's start with WeWork. I went into my WeWork in Los Angeles for a meeting the other day. I had reserved a room, but when I arrived, my mobile device said there was no reservation in my account. So I went up to the front desk and discovered I'd booked the wrong day. I'd booked the reservation for the day before. No problem, said the manager at reception, Alyssa Bussey. We've got you covered. And she got me a new room on the spot. And that's why I love WeWork. The people who work there take care of me wherever I go. My global access pass gives me the freedom to reserve meeting space wherever in the world I am. If I need a table, an office, a podcast space, a theater, WeWork has got it. That's why I'm recommending WeWork to you. Go to www.we.co slash Cal to find out how you can get a 20% discount on office space. I'm telling you, I've been at a lot of WeWorks and I've been treated tremendously by everyone who works there that I've encountered. This means way less difficulties in my life and it could mean way less in yours. WeWork. And Sportique. A simple way to feel better about life is to put on some Sportique threads. A hoodie, comfy tee, especially those Sportique sweatpants. You're going to relax, you're going to feel more comfortable, and you're going to be able to look at the world with an uncanny sense of confidence. That's why I'm always wearing my Sportiques when I record my intro and outro to Big Questions. You're at your best when you're comfortable, and you can check out what I'm talking about by going to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. And if you use the offer code CAL, you'll get a 20% discount. Makes me happy just to tell you about Sportique. And once you put those sweatpants on, you'll know why. And now, you'll also know why I go to the monk to solve my problems. Here's Dandapani. And that's one word. D-A-N-D-A-P-A-N-I. It's not Dan 
Da Ponte, like my friend Joe DeSena thought, it's Dandapani. Dandapani. Here we go. I am so thankful to be here with you, my friend. Likewise, Cal. Such, such an honor. Yeah, you're a blessing in my life. You're the answers to my questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have transformed me in so many ways. The reason I'm sitting here is because you helped turn me from a writer to a speaker, which led to a podcast, which led to the consulting I'm doing. And the amazing thing is, whenever I have a problem, I know if it's a deep problem, I can seek out Dan Dabani and get the answers. And boy, do I got a problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that you put me on this path, mm -hmm. right? And so I went from writer, picture me. I do an interview. It's just like this right now. Yeah. There's quiet. I'm looking you in the eyes. Mm -hmm. My ears are like satellites. I'm taking in everything you're going to tell me. I am completely present in this moment with you. Mm -hmm. Now, if I was writing this in an article, I would go home, I would transcribe what happened or have it transcribed. And I would sit down and in the middle of night where no noise was being made, the kids are asleep, I would write. And that story would pass over hours, but it would feel to me like minutes. Mm -hmm. I could completely zone in without interruptions. So that's where I was before I met you. Oh my God. <laughs> Listen to what you did to me. <laughs> I messed it up. Listen to what you did to me. No, you took me to a great place. Okay. And I'm so grateful oh, you. because you showed me what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. And it's exponentially greater than where I was before. But it came with this whole new territory that is completely unprepared for, right? So I'm dying to know. I start to give speeches. Yep. You were the one in the long line at Summit at Sea mm -hmm. who asked me, Cal, how long have you been speaking? Yeah. And I said, this is the first one. And you said, oh, you should be doing this. Yep. And I started to do it. And that took me to conferences and then companies. And then when I was at the companies, yep. I often had a chance to listen in to the other presenters and to the CEOs. And I started to notice that many of these companies had difficulty honing in on their own stories. Hmm. Where they had great stories, but they didn't know how to tell them or tell them in a uniform way. Right. And so I started to help the companies tell their stories. So I started a little business. And then I met a sales guy, right? And he says to me, Cal, when Apple wanted to sell their products, who got up on stage to sell them? And I said, Steve Jobs. He said, you get it? You're the CEO of your company. 
you've got to get up on stage and sell. Mm. And that turned me into a salesperson. Now, being a salesperson, in, in some ways there's some overlap to being a writer with the questions, and, but this is completely different because now you're on the phone all the time. Meetings are being arranged. Meetings are being canceled. They're being changed. Ding, ding, the phone is ding, 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 ding. And I'm going from appointment to appointment to appointment. I, my mind is being fragmented into 500 places. And now I need to learn how to concentrate in that world, which is really the world that most people are living in. Yeah. How? How do I learn to concentrate in this world? That's a great question. I mean, I, in hearing your story and what you've shared with me and your journey from being a writer to a speaker and now a consultant, advisor, it seems to me, I, I mean, for me, I kind of went through that journey of being a monk, leaving the monastery. Now I'm a Hindu priest and, and a consultant and an advisor to business owners and athletes. Um, so you went through the same process. I went through the same, exact same process. One of the biggest things I learned is that one of the biggest distractions in life as an entrepreneur and someone who's growing their business is opportunity. <laughs> Everybody loves opportunity. Yeah, that's the bad thing. Opportunity is one of the biggest distractions in life, right? Opportunities that are not aligned with the purpose of your business are distractions. So someone comes up to you, Cal, you should do this, you should do that. The first thing you need to do is say, is this opportunity aligned with the vision and mission of my business. And if it's not aligned, then it's not an opportunity. It's a distraction. And I think the problem is when I was building my business, I had so many opportunities. People came up to me, a friend of mine that ran a production company said, hey, she knew I had done events. I organized all the events in the monastery. And so I had a lot of skill and contacts around that in Asia. She said, do you want to partner up with me with my production company and let's do stuff together? And it's like, great, let's do it. Am I a production person? No, that's not my path. And then another friend came to me with a business opportunity. Let's team up and do this. Let's build a cafe together right by the beach. I never knew this. Yeah, and I was like all gung-ho into building this cafe. And then I called out one of my best friends and I asked him in Sydney, I said, hey, Andy, should I do this? He said, you're an idiot. <laughs> I said, Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> that I know. I, I didn't ask you. I didn't call you to find out I'm an idiot. I already know this. <laughs> right? So you said, you have two resources that you only have a limited resource. One is time and one is energy and, and money. So if you're going to go start this cafe with this guy by the beach, then you're going to take some of your energy, some of your time, and some of your wealth and to create this. And then you're no longer going to be developing your true mission. So opportunities are great distractions. And I'll tell you a really interesting story because you're a story man and you love telling stories. I love stories. Yeah. So a few years after I left the monastery, I spoke at an event in Toronto. And at that event, a man named Mark Echo spoke at it. I don't know too much about him, but I believe he started selling t-shirts out of a van in Jersey and then I think ended up having a billion dollar business called Echo Enterprise. Very successful. So I was this young grasshopper entrepreneur 
And when we were backstage, I, I said to Mark, we were chatting, I asked Mark, I said, Mark, if you had one piece of entrepreneurial advice to give an ex-monk about entrepreneurship, what would it be? Because for me, it's always about the question, right? Right question, great answer. So he looked at me and he said, stay narrow and deep. And to me, this has been priceless wisdom, right? Priceless. Stay. This is why I love being with you. I love stay narrow and, and deep. deep. Yeah. And he says, as you grow your business, you'll find tons of opportunities coming your way. If they're not aligned with your purpose, say no. Because as you become more popular, more famous, more people want you, they want your time, they want to have coffee with you, lunch with you, dinner with you, let's do this, let's do that over here, let's partner, stay narrow and deep. Okay, this brings up yep. a great way just to segue back to your childhood uh, and what made you who you are. Yep. Uh, because as we know, all children have childhood curiosity. Yep. I think what happened with me is that I maintained my childhood curiosity throughout my life. Yeah. So you're telling me stay narrow and deep, but in some way I'm still a little kid. And when somebody off on the side looks interesting, I get curious and I want to go over there and I want to see what's, what's happening. But what you don't see is you've stayed extremely narrow and deep and curious within one field. You're not curious about trees and plants. Every time you walk past a bush or a tree, you don't go like, what is this bush? What is this tree? Look at the bark, look at the leaf. Are there spots on the leaf? Is that mold? Is that a fungus? No, you're curious about people. That's so you've true. gone narrow and deep within people and that's why you are what you are. You're a master communicator, a master storyteller. You know how to pull information out of people and get them to share their stories with you. This is what you do, but you stayed narrow and deep. You've developed the curiosity within that one path, which is fine, right? That's not distraction. Were you very curious as a child? only in spirituality. So like my wife will tell you, I, I eat the same foods. I'm not a big food person. So I'm not curiously trying 10 different foods and every weekend trying a different cuisine, no. But within spirituality and my spiritual path, yes, I was very curious ever since I was a child. I wanted to know what is life about? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here on this planet? Why are we doing the dumb things that we do every day over and over again? When you were seven years old, you already had that. When I was about, I wanted to be a monk since I was four or five. So when was the first moment that you knew who you were going to be? I would say there were two moments, if that's okay to share. The first mm -hmm. moment is that uh, I was growing up in Malaysia. Uh, a monk came to my home. He was from Sri Lanka. He was dressed in orange robe, beads, had markings on his forehead. He came in my home. My mom invited him, gave him some food and some water. And, when I looked at him and I said, that's me, I instantly recognized the, the outfit, the dress, the garb, and I said, that's who I am. What were you wearing at the time? I'm probably shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Did, mm -hmm. did you explain to your parents, that's no, who I am? Never told anybody about it. 
Yeah, and it was just a strong, you know, like a kid sees a firefighter and he goes like, oh, I want to be a firefighter. Right. But the only difference is I held that since I was four years old or around that time till I was about eight or nine years old. And that was the bigger moment. So since then, since I was four or five and wanted to be a monk, and around eight, nine, I realized why. And the why was because I realized that everything in life is transitory in nature. Everything goes through three phases of creation, preservation, and destruction or dissolution, some end to it. I'll give you an example. Um, my cousin's having a birthday party. So my brothers and I are excited. We're going to get to go to my cousin's house, meet our cousins, play. Uh, there's going to be balloons, eat cake, run around. So all day we're excited. That's the creation. Then we get in the car, my parents drive us over in the evening, get to my cousin's place. We play for four or five hours. We eat cake. We have great time. That's the preservation part. And then we get in the car and we drive home. And I remember very distinctly sitting in the back of the car, looking out the window, you know, at 1130 at night or midnight or whatever time it was, thinking to myself, it's over. Everything ends. And I'm thinking, this sucks. <laughs> we're at a birthday cake. We're at a birthday cake. Yeah. My mom says we're going to take you and get ice cream this evening. So all day, my brother and I are excited. Should we get this blueberry? No, don't get the blueberry. We got that last week. We should get chocolate. Ah, chocolate's too boring. That's the creation. Then we get in the car. We go to the ice cream store. We buy ice cream. We eat ice cream. That's the preservation part. Then we get in the car. We come home. People are born, they live, they die. We meet together, we have this wonderful conversation, it ends. My question at around eight, nine years old is what is the constant in life? What is the one thing in life that does not change? I refuse to believe that everything goes through these three cycles. There must be something in life that doesn't change. What is that constant? I want to know that. And there's a secret in that. And that became my pursuit. And I realized that the monastic path was the most efficient path to enlightenment. And where did that lead you? Do you to finding a teacher. And, and how do you go about doing that? Google. <laughs> no. <laughs> no Google back then in the 1980s. So I would go and visit uh, monks because we are of a Hindu tradition. So whenever a Hindu monk or teacher came to town, my parents would go take me to listen to him or her talk, and I'd listen to them and. They all had inspiring, motivational things to say, but the biggest problem is that I would listen to them say something, I get inspired, I go home, I tell myself I'm gonna practice everything they told me. I did it for about four or five days, all the inspiration went away, and then I defaulted back to who I was. I could not sustain change. What I was looking for was practical tools that I can apply my, in my life in a consistent way to create sustainable change. So it wasn't until I met my guru when I was 21 that I met someone that was so grounded that put the burden or responsibility on me, gave me tools, gave me a process, helped me to define a goal, and then taught me how to apply those tools in my life consistently so that I create sustainable change. And I realized he was my master, my guru, and I wanted to follow him to his monastery. How did you meet him? Never told this part of the story. I met him first when I was about eight or nine years old at a Hindu temple in, uh, in Malaysia. Very briefly, uh, my aunt took me to see him. Uh, he said, hello. I remember him patted me on the head. Uh, I was about eight, nine years old. That meeting lasted maybe two, three minutes. And then I met him again when he was 21. He was traveling through Australia. He was in Sydney and Melbourne. He had no plans to come to Perth. Um, 
he said to one of the monks he was with, he says, do you know anybody in Perth? And he says, yeah, I know a family there. And so that monk called up one of my relatives because we had history together back in Sri Lanka. And he says, Gurudeva, my teacher wants to come visit. I said, okay, we'll bring him over. So we raised some money, we flew him over. He only came for less than 24 hours. He flew across the whole of Australia, like going from New York to LA for less than 24 hours, turning around and flew back. And the whole time he came to Perth, he spent his time with me. What was that like? It was, to me, you know, I went up to him. One of the first things, I, the first thing I said to him, you know, uh, he came, he spoke, I went up to him and I said, you know, I want self-realization in this life. I'm looking for enlightenment. And he was the only teacher to ever give a response that meant something to me. What did he say? What are you willing to do for it? Every other teacher I asked started rambling on about the universe or God being something or, you know, you, you have to do this or it's, it's all this or it's all that and this is this. And, and I was like, all of this is useless information. He was like, what are you willing to do for it? And I said, well, I'm willing to give my life for it. And he looked at me and he says, you know, I don't hand things out. You have to work for it. I said, I'll work. And I did. I gave up my life, my family, my friends, everything I loved and knew, food I liked to drink, things I liked to eat. What did your parents and your family say about this? They, my, my parents never said no. They also never said yes. Being <laughs> <laughs> parents, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're never going to talk to your child again. You know how, you're not going to say like, yeah, go ahead. You know, so I wanted to join the monastery right away. He said, no. He said, I want you to finish your studies and then come. So I had about two and a half years left of electrical engineering that I was studying. So I, and he trained me remotely. That was when email was just coming out. So he would email me, I would email him back. It was a very high tech monastery. And uh, <laughs> so he trained me. And then as soon as I passed my last exam and I knew I had passed, I left. I didn't stay for my graduation. And then I joined the monastery. And what was that like, stepping out of your world, all these the foods, your family, and then just planting two feet on the monastery? Yeah. Where was it? In the monastery was on Kauai right. in Hawaii, uh, and it was a traditional Hindu monastery. I prepared myself, right, from, I always wanted to be a monk. It was just, but if I was going to give my life to somebody, then that person better you know, be the right person. I'm not just going to join any monastery. So I wanted to find a, a good, worthy teacher. And so I started to prepare myself um, through the rest of my two and a half years at university. I would, I, I started to identify all the things I like to eat. I used to love candy bars, like a Mars bar. You know, I used to be like, I love Mars bars. <laughs> the monk and the Mars bars. The mo How do you think I get so brown? <laughs> So I love eating Mars bars, and I would give that up. And then I'd learn to slowly detach myself from people, from things, from routines that were very worldly. Not bad, worldly doesn't mean bad. Uh, music that I listened to, you know, 80s music and this and that. And so starting to give up little things because you can't go just from worldly life to monastic life like cold turkey. It would be too hard on the nervous system. So the nervous system needs to slowly adjust and the mind needs to adjust. So I spent two years preparing myself, letting go of friends, 
you know, slowly letting go of family, knowing that I'd never see them again, getting rid of my favorite clothes, my favorite CDs, everything. Literally, Cal, and most people never realize when I say everything, I mean literally everything and everyone. You don't take anything with you. And so you're literally stripping yourself yeah. day by day by day. Yeah. And are you, are you aware, okay, yeah. this, this is the process or is it just kind of happening to you? No, uh, it's a conscious effort because right. it doesn't happen. The body wants those food. I love those drinks. I love the mass, but I love the foods I'm eating. When I would eat some food that I love, I would tell myself, I will never eat this again. And now, was, okay there, was there like a joy in, okay, this is the last bite of a Mars bar I will ever take in my life? I think people want to hear yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you love it. Why, why would you give up something you love? You only give up something you love because there's something that you love even more at the other end of it. And what is at the other end of giving up the Mars bars, aside from the fact that you're giving up the sugar and you're going to be healthier? Experiencing God within you. Now that's worth giving everything and everyone up for. Mars bars, nothing in comparison. That's why I was willing to give up everyone and everything in my life. The experience of having experienced God inside of you is unparalleled to anything else in the world. So basically, from what I'm understanding, if yeah. I'm getting this right, let me know, these are all distractions from understanding the God within you. No, people think material things are distraction. It's all about the channeling of energy, right? So ultimately, we want to take our awareness from the conscious mind where we function throughout the day in our waking states, interacting, eating, move the, sub the conscious mind through the subconscious into the superconscious area of the mind, into the depths of the most refined areas of your mind, hold it there long enough with your powers of concentration to experience refined areas of your mind. In order to drive awareness so deep, you need tremendous amount of energy. So for a shuttle to go into space, what does it need? It needs to be slapped onto a rocket right? You see those rockets lifting off from Cape Canaveral or wherever the place is, right? right? The rockets are like 100 feet long and the shuttle's like this two-inch thing slapped onto that thing, right? Correct. You have all that energy taking the shuttle up through the Earth's atmosphere, which is the hardest thing. And then once it goes through, what happens? The rockets fall away and shuttle goes into it, right? So in order to drive your awareness from the conscious mind through the subconscious into the refined areas of the Superconscious, you need tremendous amount of energy. Now, law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy states that energy cannot be created or destroyed, right? But you can transfer the energy or transform the energy from one thing to another. So where do I get extra energy from? To drive my awareness. My energy is going to the mass bar. My energy is going to the food, to the music I listen, the people I know. So I start sapping you of the energy to get yeah the rocket off. Yeah, I'm cutting off all my ties of where my energy is leaking so that I can bring my energy back, harness it, withdraw it, concentrate it, and then direct it. You're funneling, stay narrow and deep. Pull all your forces in, focus that force. And if you can channel like the rays of the sun through a magnifying glass, you can burn a piece of paper. But the sun itself is not going to burn a piece of paper. So that's the process of letting go. So a lot of times people say that material things are bad and you know you shouldn't have possessions if you're 
uh, if you're trying to be spiritual, there's nothing wrong with material things. There's nothing unuplifting about a Ferrari. <laughs> you know, when I stand next to a Bugatti, I go like, man, this is a fine car. <laughs> right? No, there's nothing wrong with it. It's an uplifting experience. Right. Have you ever stood next to a Ferrari? Yes. Yes, and it, it, did you go, oh my God, this is depressing? No. No, right? So it's an uplifting experience. <laughs> material things are not bad, but what monks in our tradition realized that Every time you have a connection with a material thing or with a person, a little bit of energy goes out of you to that person. Like you and I have a friendship, a connection. Energy goes between both of us, but we're mutually exchanging. But a lot of times energy is going out to someone, to something, and then the energy is sapping out of us. And it's not coming back. No, and then we, uh, we have a space shuttle, which is our awareness, and then a tiny rocket strapped onto it, and it doesn't leave the conscious mind because there's not enough force Hence, we would draw all that energy to drive awareness to the superconscious area of the mind. Okay. And hence, uh, monks are celibate too. Conservation of energy, right? If we go down <laughs> that road, <laughs> Tell me what happens this podcast now. is going to be eight hours long. <laughs> I just want we'll, we'll to hold it. No, two. no, no. It, well, there, it may be part 64, <laughs> but uh, let's think about this yeah. because, all right, let's talk about concentration. Yeah. So you're saying, I'm going to be celibate. Yeah. How do you learn to concentrate on that where you, you have things inside of you that are arguing yeah. with, your, with that decision, that are, you have no control of, your hormone, whatever, that are saying, no, we want that. <laughs> you, you can't take that away. I don't think. You can't take it away, but you can channel it. And it's not about concentrating, it's about harnessing, right? So you, you have a mountain with water coming down it, forming a river and a waterfall. You can let that, all that water go into the ocean, or you can harness that river and create a dam and generate electricity from it, right? So we have inner sexual energy, we have tons of energy. The, the key is, how do we accumulate, first of all, the first step, let me back up a little. First step is how do we prevent the loss of energy, the hemorrhaging of energy? So if you go to a company, right, and you're gonna invest in a company, wouldn't it be one of the first logical things to do is to see where the company is hemorrhaging money? Yes. So if I have a bucket, right, before I pour water into a bucket, what do I make sure? Where's the hole? Where's the hole? If there's a hole, what do I do? Patch it up. Patch it up. Once I patch the hole, I can fill it, fill the bucket of water and accumulate. So the same thing with life. The first step in life is to see where am I leaking energy? Oh man. Plug the holes. Now the energy builds, right? You have more capital. The company has more money. When it has more money, it can invest back in itself and grow. That's why companies are always looking for funding, for investments, right? Because they want more capital to invest back, to grow. Life is the same way. Plug the holes, patch the holes, build the energy, harness it, direct it, and focus it towards what you want to create in life. Don't get distracted by opportunities. That's when you learn to focus, right? Concentrate that energy like the rays of the sun onto one thing. And that's when things manifest. And I always tell people life is a manifestation of where you invest your energy. So treat energy the same way you treat water. If I took a watering can, Cal, and I watered a garden bed, would the weeds grow or the flowers grow? Which would grow? 
Both. Well, water can't tell the difference between heat and hot. Energy is the same way. If I put energy into something positive, it grows. If I put energy into something negative, it grows. Energy can't tell the difference. So your life is a manifestation of where you've invested your energy. So I'm 45 years old. Right now I am a sum total, a historical record right this moment of where I've been investing my energy for the last 45 years. That's not including my previous lives. Right? So if you believe in reincarnation, then right now I am this a sum total of where I've been investing my energy for the last thousands of years. Right? And I'm the sum total. So life is a manifestation of where you invest energy. In order to put energy into something, we need to plug the holes, accumulate, harness, direct, focus it onto what we want. Okay. Whatever we put energy into will start to manifest. This is beautiful because I came in here feeling like a piece of Swiss cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I like Swiss cheese. <laughs> okay, so what happens as you're spending more and more time at the monastery? Yep. And you're, you just said it took two years for you to get to the place where... I could leave and go. Yep. You say leave and go. Or leave Australia where I was growing up. So okay. it took me like two years of prep preparing myself to renounce all these little things. Oh, this I, was before you even went oh, there. Yeah, I was eating Mars bars in the monastery. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a monastery at Mars bars. I had gone there. <laughs> <laughs> this was all pre, pre-monastic. Okay. Pre, pre-monastic. So life. two years of preparation. And yeah, did you know, okay, the holes are all filled. I'm ready to go. No, absolutely not. You never know. Because when you go there, you'll find out all kinds of things. And then their cravings, right? Just because I've been eating chocolate for like 10 years or 15 years, there are patterns inside of me that I can't get rid of in two years. I'm going to the monastery in the middle of the night, I'm waking and I'm craving chocolate. The only chocolate I see is my hand. <laughs> it's not my fingers. What are you yeah. eating in the monastery? Uh, we have three meals a day. Uh, we had breakfast, the monks had yoga and fruits and nuts. And then, uh, Lunch was a traditional meal of rice and lentils and vegetables that we grew in the garden. And dinner was also a traditional uh, Indian, South Indian meal uh, of, you know, varying dishes. Was it basically the same thing every day in order to... Yeah, it was... Keep you it was fairly. It was fairly consistent. It wasn't about keeping us narrow and deep. And this is just my take on it. Right, my learning and my understanding, it was about harnessing the instinctive mind. So we talked about the three states of mind. Remember when we were walking in the Bay Area? In San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco yeah, yeah, yeah. We took the three-hour walk and we talked about- The hooker three, and the monk. The hooker and the monk, right? right? I wasn't with the hooker just to clear it on your podcast. <laughs> it was Cal with the and the monk. She and was following me. Exactly. Cal wasn't with the hooker just to clear the, make it all clear here. There was just a cow, the hooker and the monk, right? So we talked about the three states of mind, right? There was the conscious mind, the subconscious, and the superconscious. The conscious is the instinctive mind, the subconscious is the intellect, and the superconscious is the intuitive. To harness the instinctive mind, you create routines and rituals. The instinctive mind, the animal nature of the mind feels calm when there's consistency, right? Rituals, when it knows, the cow is happy when it knows it's gonna be fed in the morning, in the evening. It's going to get grains at 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So by creating rituals in monasteries and in militaries, you take care of the instinctive area of the mind, allowing awareness to leave the instinctive area of the mind and go into the intellectual and intuitive areas of the mind. 
That's why routines are such a big part of monastic life, right? So that in the animal nature is calm. But when things go out of routine, then the animal nature freaks out. And what was the most difficult part of life on the monastery for you, even as you were getting accustomed to the routines, you'd already given up what you needed to give up to feel comfortable there. Was there still something that was difficult for you after years? Oh, tons of things, right? And I would say the most difficult thing was me. You? Yeah. When you strip everyone and everything, literally, from a person, what are they left with? Themselves. Themselves. Now you start to see inside of you. You start to see into your subconscious, which is a storehouse of accumulated experiences and unresolved emotional experiences from this life. And if you're observant enough, you see stuff from past lives. And now you look in your subconscious and you go like, holy crap, there's a <laughs> lot of crap in there. <laughs> and that is horrible. And there's no escape, right? So walk around the street here in, in, in Palo Alto and you'll see someone standing at the bus stand and they'll be on their phone. Because it's easier to direct awareness outside because if you're not doing anything, then you start to see what's inside and it's so painful. So everybody's distracting, patching themselves with food, going on the internet, getting on the phone, doing this, doing that, doing all kinds of things. So when you do that, you don't have to see what's inside of you, but when you strip everything and everyone away, you're left with you. Now you see all the good things in the subconscious and all the not so good things, and that's extremely difficult. What do you do with that? What do you do with the bad things? You're given tools. You're given tools to deal with them. You're given tools to deal with the unresolved emotional experiences, to deal with patterns that are unaligned with your purpose, to adjust those patterns, to deal with them, to come to terms with them. Yeah, and that's... Are you taught to concentrate on the monastery? Yes, I never knew how to concentrate. My whole life growing up, I couldn't concentrate and people told me, Dandapani, concentrate. Dandapani, concentrate on doing your homework. Dandapani, concentrate on eating your food. Nobody ever told me how to. They just told me to concentrate. They never said how to. Do you, what instrument do you not play? I do not play the flute. Cal, play the flute. <laughs> No, I said play the flute. It's not fair, right? It's not fair for me to raise my voice and yell at you to play the flute. But how many times do you hear parents looking at their kids and go, for God's sakes, can you just focus for a second? And nobody taught them to focus. No, you're yelling at the kid, telling them to concentrate, but nobody teaches them how to. It's like me yelling at you, Cal, play the flute. And then if you can't play the flute, I drug you. Oh I label you. I give you, I give you a label that goes ADFD, you know, attention deficit flute disorder. And then I give you drugs. <laughs> oh, no. Right? And then I give you drugs because you can't play the flute, but I've never taken the time to teach you. And then the second part is, how do you become good at something? You practice, right? So if you don't learn concentration and you don't practice concentration, how would you be good at it? Well, you can't practice until somebody teaches you. Exactly. That's why one comes before the other. How is, are there classes in the monastery on concentration? In the monastery, you get trained by your teacher. Well, not every monastery in our monastery you got. My guru, I felt, was very wise and enlightened. And he saw that the first thing that's needed in life is to be able to concentrate. 
right? So they teach you that. They teach you that in the monastery. And, you know, that's where I learned to focus. I realized that if I can't concentrate, I can't solve my problems. I can't stay with my problems long enough in order to get to a, pro to a solution. How can I excel? How can I be a great flute player or a soccer player or football player, whatever it is, if I can't focus? If every two seconds my awareness is going somewhere else? So concentration is at the heart of human, every human achievement and endeavor. How long would it take somebody to learn to concentrate? I think it comes down to desire. How badly do you want it? And most people, honestly, Cal, don't want it badly enough. And I think if you really wanted to learn it and you really wanted to, you had a teacher that could train you, could show you the tools, the processes and how to do it, and then the desire was strong enough, then it wouldn't take you very long. But if you, well, this is what you're doing for people now. Yeah, that's what I do. And one of the things I do is I teach people how to concentrate. I teach them to understand the mind and then to harness the mind and how to concentrate it and to actually learn concentration and practice it so they can be actually be good at it. So if I said, I am ready to give up everything <laughs> for three days. That's it, three days. Oh. <laughs> Lightweight. I think I'm getting, <laughs> I think I'm gonna need the, the two years that you took giving up the Mars bar yeah. in order <laughs> <laughs> in order to reach the place where I can sit down with you and learn. But you're doing this for a lot of people now yeah. without naming names. What's the fastest you've taught somebody to concentrate? And is there somebody that they just haven't gotten it, gotten it and you put a lot of time into it? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I've been out of the monastery for 10 years. Sounds like I've been out pretend yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think who I've been working with has dramatically changed the type of people and in the initial years I would work with people and every year I would teach them the same thing and year and year in and out would go by and there would be no change very little change over right? years yeah over years and I'd be like shocked I'm like what's wrong am I a horrible teacher did they not get it and I just realized that maybe they just weren't ready or the right type of people and I would say my best student, without naming names, is a professional soccer player that I work with right now. He's one of the best in the world. And he has blown my mind. His ability to go from not being ever taught how to concentrate at the start of the season when I started working with him to where he is now is day and night, mind-blowing. My guru would be so proud of him. When I think of him, my heart swells because he's not a great student, you know, and I think every teacher wants a great student, someone that can learn. And I hope I was a good student to my teacher, and I hope I still am, and I'm trying to be better. But this man is, is amazing. His work ethic, his ability to understand what I convey to him and then practice. He is relentless with his practice. And I'm so proud of him. So if yes. I want to learn how to concentrate, I is the first step I first got to patch the holes. Because if there's all these holes and all my energy is going to drip through them. That actually comes a little later. The first really? step is really understanding how the mind works. Because you concentrate with your mind. And if you don't understand how the mind works, you can't concentrate. So understanding how the mind works, then learning to be able to concentrate. So mind first and then concentration. All right. So two things here. Yeah. 
I'd like to know what it was like when you decided to leave the monastery and come back into a very different world. Yeah. Because that's going to take you to the place where you're confronted with all these different ding, 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 dings yeah. that I'm now being confronted with. Yeah. So what was that like when you decided to leave? You know, it was the most painful decision I've ever made in my life, leaving the monastery. I never wanted to leave. And after my guru died, uh, it was a very difficult time for the monks. We were all so close to him. So I stayed seven more years, and after seven years, my vows expired, and I decided not to renew them. And so that was a very difficult decision. And so coming into the world was painful in the sense that I was no longer being a monk or choosing to leave a monk life. But I also was very clear what I wanted to do. I was very clear and all my goal at that point, the moment I stepped out of the monastery was to put all my energy, patch the holes, focus all my energy into this new direction of my life. And what was that direction? I basically wanted to recreate what I left and hence my wife and I are building a spiritual sanctuary in Costa Rica, as you know. So the, the 33 acres of land that we have and the botanical garden that we're creating in the retreat center with the temple is my own so-called monastery. Obviously, it's not a monastery because I'm married and I have a kid, but it's a spiritual sanctuary and I'm recreating my own place. Okay, so that's going to take money. It's going to yeah. take energy. And so and focus and focus. So Lots that's putting you in a position where you're going to take what you know yep. and pass it on to people who would like to know what you know. Yep. When your phone starts ringing and people start asking you, "Hey, you want to start a restaurant?" Do you feel the energy leaking out of you, or do you just get excited at first? Uh, I get enthusiastic. There's a difference between enthusiastic and excitement. When I sat with my guru one day, I went to his office and he had asked me to work on the project. And I sat there in front of him across from his desk and I showed him the project and talked to him about what I had done. And I said to him, this is so exciting. He looked at me and he said, don't get excited, get enthusiastic. And I went, you are so wise. Do you see the difference? Yes. Excitement is uncontrolled energy. Enthusiastic is channeled energy. So I am enthusiastic about what I'm doing in this life. Very enthusiastic. So yes, cafe or this opportunity or that opportunity, I get very enthusiastic. And then, and sometimes I get pulled still because my enthusiasm takes, enthusiasm takes me that way. My entrepreneurial nature wants me to do it. And that's why I surround myself with advisors. You know, my wife, few close friends who I can call up and they can answer the phone and go, you're an idiot. And I go, okay. <laughs> and then I hang up and I say humility, no. Humility, humility. Yeah. And I say no. Right. And it's so important to build uh, a group of advisors around you that can advise you in different aspects of your life. Right. Because even with all my training, I, I am nowhere close to, I'm not perfect at all. I have so much to learn and I make bad decisions and I try to learn from them. And sometimes it's just nice to have advisors who, who can act like uh, the white lines on a road to kind of keep you on the highway to get to your goal. 
Okay. Right. So I know now. Yep. Stay narrow and deep. Yep. I know now to patch up any of the holes that are taking out my energy. That are not aligned with your purpose. Opportunities right. that are unaligned with your purpose, right? Okay. Your vision. Yep. And, and always think law of conservation of energy. Energy cannot be created or destroyed, but you can transfer it from one thing to another. So if you have 1,000, a cumulative total of 1,000 things and people in your life, and only 100% of energy, because your battery charges to 100% on your phone, right? So you that means those 1,000 things, everything is getting 0.1% of your energy. Very simple math, right? But if you have 10,000 things and people in your life, then everything is getting less energy. Less energy means less growth. So simplify your life to the most important people and things in your life so that those few things and those few people get the most energy and then those things grow. Yeah, this is hard for me because it really is running up against my curiosity. But you what? can be narrow and deep, right? You can be curious right. in what you love and you can go deeper and be more curious. That doesn't say you have to give up curiosity, but you're just harnessing and channeling your curiosity in a particular path. This I'm, I'm going to have to work on. Mm-hmm. And I, I have good reason to do it because I now know, and maybe, you know what? Maybe you're turning me into a little dandelion. <laughs> you want some stripes and dots and beads? I get some beads because I, like, I know yeah. that I can tell stories. Yeah. I know yeah, that yeah. a lot of these companies have problems telling their stories. I know I can help them. And you're and also great at getting the information out in order to share that story. And people don't know how to share, right? And so I have to just figure out ways to do this where my energy is not leaking out and make people aware of what I can do so I can come in and help yeah. and do it in, with maximum efficiency mm-hmm. so I can see the most people. It's pretty simple when you think about it. Yeah. And I, I had this one epiphany. Yeah. I wonder what you think about this. Okay. See, all these ding, 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 dings are coming in at me. And I was starting to like have dreams where I was like King Kong mm-hmm. up on top of the Empire State Building and the planes are going around. The... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm that is a vast analogy. Can I use that one? <laughs> you can definitely use it. Yeah. So, you know, this is what I did because it yeah. was really getting to me. Yeah. And it, it made me feel like I was going down, mm-hmm. even though I'm trying to climb to like a great place. And then I interviewed Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon. Okay. And before the interview, I watched some of Bruce Lee's old movies, Fist of Fury and uh-huh. uh, Enter the Dragon. Oh, my favorite. And you see these great scenes where he's set up like in a room where 12 people run in and they surround him in a circle. You know, it's like, how's he going to get out of this? But you know what? You look at his face and he doesn't feel, or he doesn't give off the sense of being King Kong. He gives off the sense of, okay, who's first? And then they all come in at him. One at a time. One at a time. And so I started to put that visualization in my head. Yeah. And 
Ding! Okay, I'll take care of that ding. Ding! I'll take care of that. And then if I get a ding, 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 I gotta be, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like Bruce Lee. Like Bruce Lee. Yeah. So that was my way of dealing with it, but I, I am, it took me to a much deeper place because now I understand this is all about channeling my energy. Yeah. And this is universal for everybody. Yep. So I'm going to leave you with one last fact that I think is true, read it on the internet. But and saying no to opportunities, right? That are unaligned. Yeah. Right. And dings that are unaligned. And the dings that are unaligned. So I read on the internet that in the entire history of humanity, all of the data that's been created, of all that, 90% has been created in the last two years. Hmm. So you can imagine all these ding, ding, dings that yeah. are coming at us. They're coming at seven years old because they got this mobile device mm -hmm. in their hands that is the frame for all the dings. Yeah. And they, you're seven years old. How would you even begin to fathom what's going on within that device? But I don't know, maybe they're in a better sense to take it all in. I don't know. But... All of us, I think, need to realize we've got to patch the holes yep. and use the energy in the place that we want to take it. And that is what leads to the special place at the top. Yeah, the superconscious. The superconscious. Yep. I never, you, you were always telling me about the superconscious. <laughs> I never understood it until now. Yeah. And I have a sense of at least taking steps to try and get there. And we'll, we'll have to do a part two and a part three and a part four. It. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm so grateful to you. I'm grateful I, to you too. Your friendship means a lot to me. This has been an experience of many lifetimes knowing you. I agree. Thank For you. For sure. Thank you, Cal. Cheers. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. It has led to so many great experiences and so many wonderful times to come. If you'd like to know more about Dandapani, go to dandapani.com. That's D-A-N-D-A-P-A-N-I.com. You might want to check out his online courses on concentration and meditation that will be rolling out in the near future. I'm going to be want to also remind you to check out my sponsors, Sportique, S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E, for the most comfortable hoodies, comfy tees, and sweatpants you can imagine. Go to Sportique.com and use the offer code CAL for 20% discount. And get a 20% discount for office space at WeWork by going to www.we.co slash CAL. My global access pass gives me access to space all around the world, which is why I'm so excited to share it with you. want to thank all of you who've emailed me with business advice and pointed me toward companies that need help telling their stories. My phone has been dinging, and that's good, because Million Dollar May is upon us. I got to figure out a way to bring in a million bucks in new revenue. Oh, boy. Let me tell you. 
I'm learning so much about business through this experience. Thank you all for coming on the journey. Cheers! 